Sales Tuners, Episode 62, Chris Daly, Vice President of Sales at Valimail. Also, as an individual producer, especially someone who's operating at your level, you have the greatest job security there is across any industry. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Benjamin Franklin, who said, without continual growth and progress, such words as improvement, achievement, and success have no meaning. Joining me today on the show is Chris Daly, Vice President of Sales at Valimail, an email authentication as a service platform. Chris has been selling for more than 20 years with products ranging from billion-dollar securities to enterprise technology solutions. And, an interesting aside, Chris told me he's eaten almond butter for breakfast almost every morning for the past 10 years. Just a note, this conversation goes pretty deep into the role of a VP of sales. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. You've heard me talk about them for a couple of months now, but you have to check out Costello. It's a deal management platform that aligns frontline sales reps, managers, and VPs so they can work together to consistently close more deals. They help reps get the right deal information from prospects, give reps and managers visibility into the quality of every deal, and help sales leaders understand what's working and what's not. Check it out at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. Make sure you stick around until the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 62. But now, let's get to the conversation, where Chris talks about how the transparency between success and failure is what drives his daily motivation. The fact that I get up each day and throw myself at something that at the end of the day, I know how well I did at it or not is incredibly motivating to me. And to be able to work in a team of people that we provide that type of transparency to each other and we understand whether we are succeeding or failing is and getting better at what we do. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything other than what I'm doing. Now, Chris, I've also heard that you met your wife in a grocery store, and that's not <laughs> typically the place that I used to go to meet women, but, but I have to hear this story. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it's, um, it's really like sales 101. I walked into the- Go where your prospects true. are? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's exactly right. So um, I walked in and it was truly one of the worst days. I, you know, in my career, I, I was actually, um, I, I took the moment to go and become a lawyer too. And so I was locked away studying for the bar and went into the grocery store and didn't want to meet anybody. And I saw my future wife and she walked by me and I said, um, you know, I've got to talk to her. And saw she was in line and got behind her and trying to think about, you know, what line I need to say. And I, I said to her, look, you know, I said, you know, I just kind of whispered, just like, what's it going to take to get your phone number before you walk out? You know, and she turned around and gave me this unbelievably harsh look. <laughs> and which case I'm supposed to tell you how smooth and suave I was. And, and I totally fell all over myself, you know, which I think is uh, consistent with a Series A when you're starting a Series A sales organization. But 
when she was walking out the door, instead of me recognizing that I had failed to do what I needed to do, I asked for the order. I said, so can I, am I going to get your number? And partly out of just pressure of not being able to say no, she did. And now we have three kids and been married for seven years. That's absolutely incredible. I love that. Well, let's let's go to the professional side of the house now, Chris. As you know, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. So talk to me about your sales process today. What is Valley Mail? And, and why does a typical customer buy from you? Valley Mail is an email authentication company. And what that means, to give you some perspective, is that 90% of the companies out there are not authenticating their email. And what that means is that somebody can easily, you don't have to be a a very um, high-skilled hacker, but you can use a company's email domains to send email and impersonate either an executive at that company or the brand itself. And these are called impersonation attacks or phishing email, and they are some of the most devastating um, emails that one can get because you're trusting that you got that email from either an executive inside your organization or a brand that you trust. And so you're likely to click on a link, download a malicious file, or that you're going to send very important information out. Now, you haven't always been the guy that you are today, so we're going to come back to where you are now, but take me way back. How did you even get started in sales? It just seemed in my life, inevitably, people like, oh, you should be in sales, you know, because of that personal nature that I had with people. And and I think that had a lot of influence on kind of guiding me in that direction and making me think that that should be a way. And the other, the other thing is that I, at a very young age, I was reading a magazine that talked about a guy making a million dollars a year. And uh, my dad was a New York City cop and we didn't have a lot of money. And so the thought of making a million dollars a year um, without having to go and get a doctorate was just the ultimate. So I set my career path in seventh grade to be a broker at Merrill Lynch. That's what I wanted to do and work towards that. From seventh grade on, that's when you knew. Yeah. And, and and it's funny though, because I've actually had a couple of uh, guys in the finance space on the show. And mm-hmm. a lot of people would not look at that and say, that's a salesperson. But you're absolutely, you're selling financial products and securities and all that kind of stuff. And you better believe it's a sales product. So it's just interesting how people have certain perception uh, of industries. Chris, one of the first articles that I read uh, that you wrote talked about your need to separate sales strategy from sales execution. Can you talk Talk more about that because I think that's been one of the key uh, tenets of the success that you found in your career. So, and and again, Jim, you know, my my career has really focused on those Series A early stage companies where, to me, the challenge of sales is 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 at its pinnacle. Right. Um, I remember the, the the sales manager at Merrill saying to me that the reason you're so successful is that you work for Merrill Lynch. Wow. And and I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really accept that, right? I hear, I thought I was incredibly, you know, successful sales guy, and for Merrill to say no, but you're calling from our organization, and that's what opens the door, and that's what allows you to then be able to do what you do. And so when I came to the Series A world, I needed to prove to myself that, that wasn't the case. If I was working with somebody with a company that had no brand, had no momentum there, that I could effectively sell in that organization. And one of the things that I became, you know, aware of is how do you begin to isolate that environment to really begin to understand the pieces of it to optimize it. And 
what I looked at is the complexity of how you think about your sales strategy and how you talk with a CEO and the founders of an organization and how they envision what those results should be out of a sales organization and their assumptions about how it should be performing and what it should be kicking out versus you know, the actual execution implementation aspect of what is possible within the construct of, of that organization. I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, so one of the frameworks that I use with when coaching clients is I call it the 4S framework. I look at strategy, structure, staff, and skills. And I didn't think about it the way you're doing it, but that's exactly right. But for me, it's the first thing that, p- that people call me for is, Chris, it's like, you know, if you could just come in and teach our, our sales reps a few skills, they'd right. be able to close more deals. And I'm like, right. well, do, exactly. first of all, do we have the right people in place to teach the skills to? And then if we have the right people, do they do they have the right sales strategy? structure to sell from. And the only way we to know if they have the right structure to sell from is that they have the right strategy to go to market. So I'm totally um, picking up what you're laying down here. So, you know, you're going into these companies and you've done this multiple times now, and it, it's kind of an emotional roller coaster. So when you go into one of these new companies, how are you getting the, the CEO or the founder to buy in on that? And kind of what are your first you know couple of steps uh, when you get in? It's critical that you get your arms around what I call create the sales lab, right? You have to create a infrastructure that can give to your CEO the kind of confidence visibility into what's going on in the sales organization. So, you know, it might sound like standard stuff, but they they need to see that the effort, the number of calls, the number of email outreach, the work ethic is there. They need to have visibility in terms of what's happening from those outreaches. And you need to provide to them the kind of um, insight into what is ultimately coming from the work you're putting in so that you can buy time to then come back to that CEO and say, okay, here's the deal. Um, Here's the problems that we have. Here's where we're underinvested. And then to your original question, here's what we're starting to discover about the sales strategy itself. And when you build that confidence that your CEO has, that you're doing, you're you're building the kind of infrastructure that gives him or her that kind of visibility, that they can believe you're, you know, moving the ball in the right way, it then gives you the the equity to then have very difficult conversations with um, founder CEOs to say, now let's go back to the strategy here. Because I think what we're starting to discover is certain core assumptions about the strategy might not actually be correct. And let me show you that data. And if you don't build that sales lab right out off the bat and you don't you're not bringing data to that conversation, what you're forcing that CEO to do is say, do I trust do I trust Chris Daly, who I might not have ever worked with before? And and that's a big ask. And I, I don't think that you should be putting a CEO in that position. You Especially, know, to, as you said, not at the Series A level, because there's just too much yeah. riding on it, right? There's just, right. We, we've not reached escape velocity yet, and we can't just have the confidence in you. We have investors and, and, and so many different constituents that have to be uh, listened to at that point. So you've done a great job, and, and I have plenty of VPs who listen to this uh, podcast, and they're going to need to be managing up. Let's look at the other side now from the execution piece and get down into the reps. Now that you're leading them, what are the first kind of steps that you're taking with them to get them in the right situation to be able to execute the strategy that you've set? 
It all begins with allow, first getting their trust that truly I am there to make them a better salesperson, right? I mean, what I want every rep to understand is that if, if they're with me on making them better, then I know Valamel or whatever company that I'm working for leading that team, they're good, that company's going to benefit. So I want to make sure that they feel comfortable that in the practice of sales they're going to do with me, that they feel comfortable, that it's not going to be one of just pure judgment, but it's going to be one of pure coaching. How do I keep pushing you to psychologically push yourself to get the most out of what you're doing each day? How do I get you to feel confident enough to play that tape, to analyze that tape, to say, hey, how could I have done that better? How do I get you confident enough to look at your data and see where you need to be prospecting more or where you need to be able to change your, you know, your technique? And so, you know, it begins with me winning over that trust with salespeople to understand so that they understand that I'm in their corner. I'm their coach. We live in, we succeed and fail together? And then how do I keep building their confidence to, to have the kind of look into their performance that they need in order to keep getting better and driving what I refer to as cracking the code of how do we figure out what needs to be done here to move on to scalability? Um, and also how do we you know, keep them on a trajectory of getting better and better and more efficient each day? I've got to ask you this just because you, you, you kind of brought it up, but it, it's to me, the best salespeople do yep. not make the best sales managers. You kind of right. take them out of their role. You, you take all the things away from them that they were good at, and now you ask them to pull those things out of other people. But that's not their gift. That's not your, their skill set. That's my opinion. What are, what are your thoughts on that? No, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's interesting because looking back on some of the salespeople that I've had to work very hard interviewing, one of the things I'm looking for is to what degree they understand this process that they are proven successful at. And I'm amazed that I've hired some very high performers who really can't articulate that very well. And so the thought of moving a high performing salesperson into a sales management role where the key there is you have to know exactly that process and be able to not only articulate it, but take it to the next level of how in the context of a typical organization can you implement that. Those skill sets don't necessarily translate. And I think it's, it's one of the mistakes that organization after organization consistently makes of promoting one of their you know star performance to a sales manager when um you know without the training or the support to really learn those skills to be a a sales leader i I think that was pure gold do you understand the process that made you successful and can you can you implement it and i think that's absolutely fantastic so let me ask this then what do you do with those star performers that are kind of like they're hitting the top and they don't want to be promoted. They want to just keep doing what it is that they do, but they feel like because of career expectations, they either have to move up or move out. There's a number of ways to deal with that. And one is that there is a lot greater vulnerability. I think I think we all as human beings are looking for levels of, of stability in our life or safety in our life. And so the one is, let's take the money aspect. We all know that if you're a star individual performer, if you're working in an organization that hasn't in any way capped what you can earn, you're probably going to earn more than your sales manager. Absolutely. Uh, so there, what I'm really trying to get them to understand is that as long 
as we keep working on making you better and better, and as long as you keep feeling you're getting better and better at your craft, then your income potential is going to keep growing, and that gives you safety and security. Also, as an individual producer, especially someone who's operating at your level, you have the greatest job security there is across any industry. When you're a sales manager, you know, in, in many ways, you don't have that same level of job security that you do when you have, when you're a star individual performer. Because as a, as a leader of the sales organization, this kind of goes back to the strategy versus execution discussion, is inevitably you are responsible for whether it works or not, you know, period. And that means you take on your shoulders much greater responsibility than beyond what you're just dealing with in your department. One of the things that I, I've heard you say before is that sales is a collective effort, that everyone yep. in the organization is responsible for it. And, and it's not that I don't disagree, but one of the things you just said, right? Like if you're the highest performer in the organization, you often are also the most highly compensated. So if, if sales truly is a collective effort, then why is it just the salesperson that's making the commission? There's all these cliches, you know, in, in, in sales that we talk about. You know, we use the word team all the time. You know, we use all these sports analogies, team-based you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of analogies and stuff. And, and the reality is that the typical organization is not really there yet embracing culturally what it means to be a true team. And, you know, when we ring the bell here at Balamel and we talk about, you know, patting the salesperson on the back for bringing in, you know, revenue and stuff like that, you know, the truth is I am adamant, adamant about that it starts with thanking the product team because they have delivered to us such a great product. And then there's obviously the work of the finance group and there's the work of the marketing. I mean, it is, you know, everybody has to be operating in order for us to be in the position that we can sell and do what it is that we get all the kudos for. Uh, so, you know, I think there's some work there that needs to be done as far as getting organizations to really embrace that and how they think about it from a compensation standpoint, from um, a recognition standpoint. But this is clearly a team-based activity and one of the most exciting, I think, of all the team-based activities. You know, I, so I could not agree more now, but uh, if you would have said that to me three or four years ago, I would have totally blown you off, Chris. But, you know, I was sharing with you before we started recording that most recently, I had a startup that we, I was leading the sales team and we had it acquired by Oracle. And man, I got the biggest ego in the world. I thought I was the, you know, God's gift to sales. And, and, um, it was very humbling for me to experience the startup failure that I had right after that. But what it did truly is made me look back at the successes that I had had in my career and realize all the other people who had true influence on that. If I look back most specifically at the recent one with Compendium that was required by uh, Oracle, it was, if it wasn't for James Payton, the guy who was building the product and like giving, you know, taking the customer feedback I was giving him and actually making it what we needed. And if it wasn't for Clayton Stobbs, who actually held down the revenue we had from the existing customer base, there was no way I could have even had my job. And then if it wasn't for the team that I was building and the things that they were able to do and some of the hero efforts, you know, that I asked of them, there's just no way I would have been in the position to uh, call myself, you know, the, the VP of sales. So totally agree with it today. Uh, but it's been, a journey for me to get there. So hopefully uh, we can save some other people some time by uh, what they just heard. So that's great. Uh, another one of the things that I've admired, Chris, about your work is your focus on sales ops and mm -hmm. how that leads to accountability. How right. do you begin to set that up inside of an organization? 
we all know the core levers that translate into major success. You know, you, you talk about close rate or you, you know, whenever we think about kind of the funnel economics, right, we can easily isolate what those core things have to be. How many people do we have to um, speak to? And then how many calls or emails do we have to send? And if we speak to a certain number of people, you know, what is the expectation those will go to a demo and stuff like that? So, I mean, very quickly, you come into an organization knowing what those key KPIs are. The question is, do you stay focused and go home every night and ask yourself, have I built the infrastructure that gives me the transparency into whether we are hitting that number and whether we are on path to that? And it's very easy to go home at night and say there's other distractions or I got to help close that deal or what have you. But in the VP role, I think it is critical that you say to yourself, how am I adding every day greater velocity, greater you know, efficiency into the machine? And that involves you being able to ask yourself, have I created or put that piece of infrastructure, gives me visibility into that KPI. And then more importantly, I, I know whether we're hitting it or not hitting it, but do I have even greater visibility into some of the key aspects of why I might not be hitting that? And I'll give you I'll give you like one just quick, easy example. So in the sales world, we all talk about whether we record our calls or record our videos. And we all say, oh, yeah, you know, to a certain extent we do. We don't. It needs to be a ritual that there is no there is no ambiguity. Every sales call gets recorded. It's an opportunity for training. It's an opportunity to pass that learning throughout the organization. It, it, it cuts down again all this trust issue because when people can hear it on the tape, they can hear a prospect raise that objection. They can hear the salesperson the way they responded to it. It, 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 it is a piece of sales op infrastructure that has a tremendous influence on improving the efficiency of the organization and training. One of my, I started smiling uh, because one of the clients that I work with right now, he has posted all over the sales room, always be recording, ABR, always be recording. Just a funny uh, take there from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. So Chris, uh, I have got to take a quick, quick break so we can say thank you to our sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Pipedrive is the sales CRM built by salespeople for salespeople. I love it because it allows me to visualize my pipeline, highlighting opportunities and potential problems, ensuring I don't drop the important activities and conversations needed. And the managers I work with love it because it's simple and they don't have to nag their team to actually use it. But sales sooners, don't just take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself for free for 30 days at salesooners.com slash pipedrive. We're back and it's time for the money round. Chris, are you ready for the money I round? I am ready. Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? I think it is a certain kind of maturity of recognizing that um, that true confidence requires the separation of ego or the control of ego to be able to really listen to really be able to pull myself out of the sales situation so I could really listen, so I could really respond to what somebody was saying, and so that I could be confident enough to look at my results in the eye and get better and better. Uh, I think it was an emotional transformation of maturity that, that fueled it. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? 
I would tell myself to get really, really um, focused on being able to set my expectations of, you know, kind of what are the key uh, goals. I'd put a business plan together and then I'd look at that business plan and say to myself, okay, what are the key things in this business plan that I need to think about doing well or monitoring to make sure that I'm doing well? So I set up my own kind of sales lab to get much more focused on getting better right from the start. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. I love to win. I truly see that as, and I don't want to sound corny here, but I truly see that in the, in the, in the real Zig Ziglar fashion of if I'm winning at what I'm doing, I'm really investing in helping great talent become better. If I'm winning at what I'm doing, I'm really filling the needs that customers have of preventing the kind of damage that, uh, that can happen with spoofing emails or impersonation attacks. Chris, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Of Human Bondage, Somerset Mom. Sales Tuners, if you'd like to check out Chris's suggestion of Of Human Bonding for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, salestuners.com slash book. Chris, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? I want to go, I want to do like a month over in Nepal immerse myself. I I love taking trips like that. And so that's certainly on my bucket list. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Be committed to finding ways to get better. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how talented you think you are, ask yourself when you go home tonight, what did you do to really look at whether your perception of your performance is actually what's the true performance. And if you haven't done that either tonight or this week, commit yourself to doing that. Commit yourself to finding a process, a system that will reveal to you whether you can do something much better. Commit yourself to becoming better and better. And and you're going to have a fantastic, long-lasting, safe, very profitable career. Chris, I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to after the show today? Well, you can always connect to me, with me through LinkedIn, or you're more than welcome to connect with me through um, cdaily100 at Gmail. Uh, you know, and if you have any questions or if I could be of help to you, I'd more than be more than happy to help. Chris, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for doing what you do. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about what individual contributors need to do in order to be successful, but it was nice to go deep into structure and the why behind things with someone who's done it at several different companies. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, create visibility to buy time. To many, it seems like sales boils down to have you closed a deal or not? Most people don't see or care about all the elements that go into a deal prior to a signature event happening. In order for you to have the time to execute, you must create systems that allow your CEO to see those incremental steps you're taking. That information allows you to have potentially difficult or challenging conversations. Number two, learn how to win graciously. I'm going to be honest with you. I used to have an enormous ego, going as far to even thinking to myself that my sales effort were the reason that everyone else on the team got a paycheck. Thankfully, I've had some events in my life humble me a bit. That said, when you close a deal, be sure to thank those who played a role in your win. Did an SDR set that appointment for you? Did marketing influence the lead? 
Did the product team roll out a new update that made your talk track sticky? Thank those people. You couldn't do what you do without them. And number three, commit to being better. If you've been doing what you do for, say, five years, you'd probably think you have five years of experience, right? Wrong. For a lot of you, you probably have one year of experience five times over. What's the difference? If you think you can just show up to work every day and go through the motions, that's not making you better and you're not gaining any experience. You have to commit to self-improvement. Outside of the workday, are you practicing and role-playing new tactics? Are you listening to your calls and making notes on where you can improve? Are you seeking mentorship and guidance from those outside of your company? It's up to you to decide whether you're going to get better or just stay average. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. When it's all said and done, will you have said more than you've done?